0: Welcome back to Loose Ends The Sing Family Tragedy. This is episode 31 A Case for the Prosecution. My name is Graham Crowley. Thank you very much for joining me. This podcast has been created for an adult audience, so listener discretion is advised. The thoughts and opinions in this podcast are mine. Feedback I received this Facebook message after I had recorded this episode. I considered it most appropriate to end the series on this listener's comments. Hey Graham, just wanted to let you know I am loving your podcasts. I used to work next door to Max when he worked at Naples Ashgrove, also lived around the corner from him. He drove me home a couple of times. When the murders first happened, I had him guilty for sure. Nothing to do with knowing him, but because of the media coverage. I don't feel the same way now after listening to Loose Ends. Keep up the good work. That is exactly how I felt when I started this podcast, and I believe most Australians felt the same way, except of course for the extended Seeker family, who have never believed Max Seeker guilty. You have listened to me for 30 episodes describe the Singh murders, the investigation and the trial of Max Seeker. You have listened to Jeff Johnson explain the evidence as he has discovered, from a legal viewpoint, over eight of those episodes. The evidence is complicated, circumstantial, confusing, some discredited, some misleading, some plain wrong. I believe many people will now be wondering what evidence currently exists to show Max Seeker murdered the Sings. Do we even need to consider what evidence exists to show Max Seeker murdered the Sings? After all, he has been convicted, lost his appeal, and is in jail. Valid questions, which I decided to explore. There is a petition for pardon currently before the Attorney-General. The petition is seeking to have Max Seeker's conviction referred back to the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal consists of three judges who consider the evidence presented at an appeal separately. The judges then come together and the majority rules. That is, two out of three, or perhaps even three out of three. The first possible outcome would be the petition is rejected, the conviction upheld, and Max Seeker continues to serve his sentence. The second possible outcome would be a majority rule the evidence is conclusive and order the murder convictions quashed and a verdict of not guilty entered. The third possible outcome would be the majority rule there is sufficient grounds to overturn the conviction and order a retrial. That is what happened in the Holland case. If you ask me for percentage outcomes, I would say the following, but please bear in mind this is my opinion. 80% of Court of Appeal hearings are rejected. 18% of convictions are overturned and a new trial ordered. 2% of the cases have a not guilty verdict entered in lieu of conviction. My personal opinion? If the Seeker case made it to the Court of Appeal and there was no interference from government, he would be in that 2% category. If you wonder why I say no interference from government, a verdict of not guilty Would result in a world of pain being visited upon the Queensland Government of the day and the Queensland Police Service. Quite simply, the Government could not and would not let that happen. There is supposed to be separation of powers in government. Unfortunately, those powers become murky. If you do not understand separation of powers, Google will assist. Most likely, again, my own opinion, the Court of Appeal would direct a retrial be held. With that outcome, the Crown would have to consider its position. And that is why we are having this conversation. Is there sufficient evidence to go to retrial? Would the Crown want to go to retrial? Would the Queensland Police Service want to go to retrial? Let's explore that. Can the DPP police change the evidence? Yes, of course they can, and do. Further investigations can and do have an impact on the known evidence, as happened in the Holland case. You will remember mum, made-up maggot. Three scientists swore affidavits that what the police claimed was scientifically impossible. That is, that mum would not survive in the boot of Graham Stafford's car from Monday through Thursday. It would obviously be very difficult for the Queensland Police to find three scientists who opposed that proposition. In the review of the Holland investigation, the Queensland Police concluded that the maggot likely made its way into the boot of Graham Stafford's car on the Wednesday morning when Graham Stafford returned to the body around 8.45am and not on the Monday as previously claimed. By saying that, it was then feasible mum would still be alive on thursday the claim mum found its way into the boot on the wednesday opened a pandora's box because there was a mountain of evidence that was not feasible but it did not matter the matter was never going back to trial anyway the queensland police knew that the dpp knew that there simply was not enough evidence but that could never be stated publicly. If you doubt that, you need to listen to episodes 18, 19 and 20 of my podcast Who Killed Leanne Holland. Then we have the seeker case. The following views are mine again. They reflect in no way how the Queensland Police, or DPP, might address the evidence as it currently stands. I am drawing on my knowledge of the evidence as is now available. After evidence that I believe has been shown to be discredited, it would be doubtful that it could be used in any retrial. The scenario I paint is not a perfect case against Max Seeker. But then the original Crown case against Max Seeker was also far from perfect, but they managed to get a conviction. But I believe it does not need to be a perfect case, For reasons as I explain, I don't believe the DPP would ever take seeker to a retrial. Unless significant new evidence has come to light since 2012, and it may well have, the Crown would have to rely on the evidence it had to that time. There were originally 17 points of circumstantial evidence and the confession used at trial. By necessity, I have recycled those 17 points of circumstantial evidence for the purpose of this discussion. There are now, in my opinion, 15 points of circumstantial evidence and the confession upon which the Crown might consider relying on a retrial. Naturally, the Crown case would be cognizant of the evidence that has come out since 2012 particularly through solicitor Jeff Johnson. It would be extremely problematic to change the murder timeline from the Sunday night, Monday morning to, say, for example, Monday night, Tuesday morning, for reasons that have been well laid out in previous episodes of this podcast. I do not believe the Queensland Police Service has any option other than to run with that Sunday night timeline. The first point of the Crown case would therefore have to remain as follows.
1: First, there was a significant body of evidence to prove that the killings occurred between 11.10pm on Easter Sunday and 7.15am the next morning, and that the only evidence of the accused whereabouts was his own word.
0: How do the QPS get around the conclusions of two recent studies out of Europe that plume in the victim's mouth and nostrils disappeared after 24 hours from death by drowning. Those tests claim that in 100% of cases, plume only appeared in drownings where the victim had been deceased for less than 24 hours. However, if there is even a 1% chance, or perhaps even a 0.1% chance, that plume may appear longer than 24 hours from death, the crown can maintain the Sunday night timeframe remains in play. If there is something I have learned along the way, it is that for every expert witness with an opinion, there is an expert witness with an opposing opinion. Except where you have three expert witnesses, as mentioned above in the Holland case. That required thinking outside of the box. I expect there would be an expert witness somewhere in the world who would be willing to make the claim that in rare instances, Plume existed after 24 hours of death from drowning and could be found many hours later. Going from 24 hours to as long as 40 hours may be a stretch, but it doesn't matter, as the matter will not be going to retrial anyway, I believe. The Crown could argue, therefore, the death of Canel Singh was a possibility on the Sunday night. Another problem confronting the prosecution, of course, would be the issue of the government pathologist Dr. Alumbi. He gave evidence that he would not expect to see Plume after 24 hours. Two experts, but not three. The Crown would also be keen to ensure the defence were not in possession of the information that as late as 2006, the QPS considered the bodies had only been in the water 6-12 to hours, not 38 hours, perhaps almost time to start thinking outside the box. If the Crown cannot find such an expert witness, likely their whole case is dead in the water. The cessation of all communication by the victims, with the last known communication being 11.10pm on the Sunday night, it was argued confirm this timeline, and the Crown would maintain that to be the position. The lack of communication on the Monday and Tuesday by the victims further supported this timeline. The evidence of some neighbours in Grass Tree Close supported this conclusion also. The next point of the Crown
1: case would be Second, that the accused was the only one who it can be shown was expected to be at the house after 11.10pm that night.
0: At 11.10pm on the Sunday night, Max and Nielma had the one ring followed by a 34-second phone call. Maxika claimed she was sick and for him not to come over and he claimed he did not go over and stayed home. The Crown claimed and could continue to claim that was a lie and that he went to the Singh house. The QPS have been able to eliminate all other possible visitors. The so-called Sunday night visitor at 8.30pm was a distraction. Taxi driver Bourne was mistaken when he claimed he delivered a customer to the Singh house around 11pm that Sunday night.
1: Third, that Neilmer likely believed that the accused was suffering from an inoperable and terminal brain tumour. Point four would need to be altered. It was previously... Fourth, that the alarm was not armed prayer sheets printed and Neilma's being a nightshirt wearing no underwear. This would need to be amended to fourth, that the alarm was not armed, prayer sheets printed.
0: The house alarm was not armed that Sunday night, just as it was not armed on previous nights when Max Seeker attended. It would be claimed that Neilma turned the alarm system off when she knew Max Seeker was visiting. Prayer sheets had been printed out, in anticipation of his attendance, just as he had read prayer sheets on previous attendances. The reason the point would need to be amended would be because clumps of Neilma's hair were pulled out in various locations. Neilma's night attire, tracksuit pants, top and underwear were found throughout three locations in the crime scene, scattered amongst dead bodies. More consistent with rape, then cheekily awaiting her lover. This is a new point of circumstantial evidence I believe the Crown could or would introduce at this point. 5. Max Seeker was accompanied to the house by an accomplice who assisted him to murder the victims. The identity of the accomplice is yet to be identified. Now in relation to that point, the Crown would, by this time, likely accept There was more than one offender involved in these murders. The considerable evidence always available but never used to support more than one killer was involved would be problematic for the Crown. They would need to amend the Crown case to accommodate that. The QPS may report extensive inquiries to identify the co-offender are continuing. They know the co-offender has a foot size around size 8. An arrest was expected. To argue that, the Crown may say, Max Seeker's accomplice picked him up from outside his house at Stafford Heights in the accomplice's car sometime after 1am. The accomplice likely brought the murder weapon. The evidence of Marcia Q, the late Claudio Seeker and the neighbor Lisa L was no longer relevant. They would not be called to give evidence. Of course, Seeker was seen in bed around 1am by Claudio Seeker. Of course, all three Seeker cars were parked out front all Sunday night, as reported by Lisa L. The co offender parked his car in Pepper Street. The QPS know it was a co offender wearing VJ sandals inside the crime scene because Max Seeker had a size 11 to 12 foot and VJ's sandals were only size 8. And the QPS knew that Max Seeker respected the house rules about wearing shoes upstairs. The co-offender left fingerprints and DNA at this crime scene, which are yet to be identified. A stretch of the imagination and maybe some more direct evidence might be required, but it did not deter from speculation in the original trial. The next point, six.
1: that Kunau and Siti were killed in their beds.
0: The offenders crept upstairs and murdered the two siblings. Connell woke up when they entered his room. The co-offender punched Connell to the face, leaving him with a bruised lip and nose. The QPS know it was a co-offender because Maxika did not have any injuries to his hands. The QPS state the evidence supports two offenders being involved because the siblings were murdered by blows to the head, even though Connell died from drowning He ultimately would have died from blows to the head, as I understand it. Whereas Nilma was strangled. Two different means of death. The next point, seven.
1: There was no motive for either Kunau or Sidi to have been killed, apart from a desire to cover up evidence concerning the killing of Nilma. Point eight would need to be altered. It was previously this. The fact that Neelma was strangled suggests that her assailant came without a weapon and was known to Neelma. It would now need to read as follows. The fact that Neelma was strangled suggests known to Neelma.
0: Neelma was surprised but not alarmed when Max Seeker arrived with a friend.
1: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: She was struck about the head and knocked unconscious downstairs. She bled on the downstairs tiles. The tiles were mopped with bleach. Neoma's blood transferred to the bleach bottle in the process. The offenders removed their shoes and one of them stepped on the bottom step of the stairs and left a bleach stain. Likely the co-offender, as no bleach was found on any of Maxika's clothing or shoes. After murdering the siblings, the offenders returned downstairs. They then carried, dragged Neelma upstairs, leaving hair and blood as they went. Her blood transferred onto the stair banister. Her blood transferred to the light switch in her room. Their footsteps were found in Neelma's room. Neelma regained consciousness and tried to escape. Clumps of hair were pulled out. Her night attire were ripped off her in various rooms. The co-offender then held Nilma down by her arms, bruising both arms in the process. Maxika then strangled her. All three victims were then placed in the spa. One of the offenders, believed to be the co-offender, then had a cigarette and admired their handiwork and dropped the cigarette butt in the spa. The co-offender likely went to the kitchen and obtained food and drink, which he consumed in Neilma's room. The Queensland Police suspect it was a co-offender because Max was obedient to the House rules, as set out in point 12. Point 9 would have to be removed. This was the circumstantial evidence that the garden fork in the garden was used in the
1: attacks, or some of them. The garden fork was used in the attacks, or at least some of them, It was situated in a place in the garage that would be unlikely to be obvious to a stranger.
0: The evidence the Garden Fork was introduced after the murders is significant and compelling. If witnesses were called on this evidence, they would likely lose all credibility and the Crown case would be in jeopardy. The Crown may assert the Garden Fork was not involved in the murders. It may have been the case the same rogue officer tampered with that evidence. See my further comments regarding the rogue officer in the next point. 10. This would need to be amended. This is how it previously read.
1: The impressions on the stairs were caused by bleach and combined with other evidence lead to the conclusion that the use of bleach was associated with the killing in some manner, probably to clean the floor. The presence of Nelma's blood on the wall adjacent to the stairs and the bloodied footprint in her room strengthens the submission.
0: The letter S on the second word of that point, impressions, would have to go so that the point read, the impression on the stairs, and so on. I personally do not believe the Crown would introduce the evidence of the blackened footprints found on the stairs. The evidence that those footprints had been introduced to the crime scene after the murders is likely insurmountable. The Crown would prefer not to mention the evidence, including the footprints in Neilma's room, which were not previously referred to in evidence anyway. The evidence regarding those footprints was not mentioned in the first trial, so the same approach would be adopted in a retrial. When the defence make an issue of it, as would be expected. The Crown may suggest that investigations revealed there had been a rogue police officer on scene. An officer so overcome with emotion about the devastation and loss of life that he, she, took matters into their own hands to secure a conviction of Max Seeker. The crime scene was terrible. Many police were traumatised. Four police left the service after attending that scene. Members of the jury were crying and traumatised by the photos. The situation was unfortunate, regrettable, but human nature sometimes intervenes. 11. This point of circumstantial evidence would also need to be altered.
1: It was previously... The bleached impressions on the stairs were from feet and the lessening concentrations of bleach as moving up the stairs is consistent with socks having been worn.
0: That would need to change too.
1: The bleached impressions on the stairs were from feet is consistent with socks having been worn. Point 12. The killer was obedient to the house rules about not wearing shoes upstairs.
0: It would be the crown case the co-offender was disrespectful and not obedient to the house rules as previously outlined, whereas Max Seeker was. Point 13.
1: Of the items missing, many were items of a special sentimental value concerning Neelma, and included the pendant given by the accused on Valentine's Day 2002 and the diary in which Neilma recorded matters concerning the accused, which he knew were stored in Neelma's drawers.
0: Point 14. This point of circumstantial evidence would need to be altered. It was previously,
1: Although the prosecution did not suggest what the reason was as to why the accused strangled Nielma with murderous intent, the tumultuous and at times volatile nature of their relationship meant that sudden violence was feasible.
0: I believe that point would now need to read, The prosecution claims revenge was the motive for the murders and the relationship between Sika and Nielma was tumultuous and at times volatile. And the argument could be as follows. This was not a crime of passion, nor spontaneous. Max Seeker was out for revenge. Neilma had shunned him, cuckolded him. He was angry. He was pretending to be playing along with her desire to reconnect with a previous boyfriend. But deep down, he was seething with hatred. He hated her parents. Vijay refused permission for him to marry Nielma. They mocked him. The three points that previously made up points 14, 15 and 16, I believe, would need to be removed from the Crown case. To refresh your memory, they were as follows.
1: There was good reason to doubt that the accused was legitimately expected at Grass Tree Close on the 22nd of April 2003. 15. The accused arrived about 2pm and stayed in the house for too long before notifying anyone of the bodies to be consistent with an unexpected chance discovery of the deceased. 16. He lied about the time he arrived at the house because he knew that if he told the truth he would implicate himself in the killings.
0: The evidence for the Crown on the Tuesday lie is now problematic. They would be unable to call the witness with the phone, the one with the wrong date on it. Whilst he was not the only witness the Crown called, he was a significant witness. There is the evidence of then 10-year-old Melena P that Max Seeker did in fact pick up Auntie Enna. There is the evidence Queensland Police failed to search for CCTV footage at Stafford City Shopping Centre that did exist and was available. The Crown may be obliged to accept Max Seeker did arrive at 2.20pm on the Tuesday. But the Crown case could be, Max chose to be the one to find the bodies on the Tuesday to make sure he could check for any missed evidence left behind. And to show that he was concerned about Nilma because she was not returning his calls. He also wanted to be able to claim that any DNA etc. he left was accidentally transferred on the Tuesday. The next point, which would now be 15
1: He made statements to a trusted friend that amount in all the circumstances to a confession to involvement in the killings.
0: And these are the added points of circumstantial evidence I believe might be available to the Crown. 16. Max Seeker has a history of destroying evidence. As a teenager, he and a group of friends burnt down the Ashgrove police station to destroy evidence. One of the group had received two traffic tickets by an officer attached to the Ashgrove police station. By burning down the station, they believed they would destroy evidence of those traffic tickets. And the Crown case could be, the offenders took with them the murder weapon. No evidence was recovered from Max Seeker because they were in the accomplice's car. The offenders brought extra clothing with them, or stole clothes belonging to VJ Singh, which, due to his grief, he never noticed missing. From Max Seeker's lengthy prison sentences, he learnt from other criminals how to dispose of evidence. And point 17. Evidence will be given by Joe Cool, a kidnapper and convicted criminal who met Max Seeker in prison. Cool will tell the court, that whilst planning a kidnapping in 2002, Max Seeker told him Bleach was good for destroying evidence. Bleach was found in the boot of Joe Cool's car when he was arrested for the kidnapping. And that's it for the Crown case. I believe I have recycled all evidence that might be available to the Crown. But if you feel I've missed something, please tell me. Do I have predictions on the Seeker case? As it happens, yes, I do. Jeff Johnson and I hold differing opinions as to whether this case will ever reach the Court of Appeal, as you have heard frequently. I hope Jeff Johnson is right and I am wrong. Time will tell. If the case does reach the Court of Appeal, I predict Seeker will not become a two percenter, but instead an eighteen percenter, that a retrial would be ordered. I predict from there, the QPS would say, after a very thorough reinvestigation, they have overwhelming evidence, including new compelling evidence, as outlined here in this episode, that Max Seeker murdered the Singh children. I predict the DPP would decline to prosecute Max Seeker, citing no benefit to the public in doing so. Physical evidence has been destroyed. Witnesses have died or are not available. In reality, the DPP would privately know there was insufficient evidence to take Maxika to trial. The DPP would want to avoid allegations of evidence tampering and perjury. A decision by the DPP not to prosecute Max Seeker would also be controversial. We are talking about Max Seeker after all, Australia's most hated individual. Unless I am missing something, the DPP would have no option other than to not prosecute him. What I have been able to scrape together for this episode from the ruins of the original police investigation is not sufficient evidence to connect Max Seeker to the murders, in my opinion. The majority of what I read out here is mere speculation. Courts operate on facts, not speculation the government would want to avoid the resultant public backlash. That way, everyone would win. Well, almost. The government would win as the matter would go away. The DPP would not have to run a very problematic trial. The QPS would win. The QPS could take the moral high ground and claim the evidence was irrefutable and overwhelming that Max Seeker was a killer. And it was not their fault that the DPP would not prosecute, but they would respect the decision of the DPP. A repeat, actually, of what was said in the Holland case. Max Seeker would win because he was out of prison. Would there be any losers? Yes, the citizens of Queensland who have not seen justice done. And the real killer would be still roaming free. And if the case went in that direction... Seeker would be in the same position as Graham Stafford, not guilty, not innocent. And if Max Seeker's solicitors wanted to obtain the police file through Freedom of Information to see exactly the compelling evidence they had, they would have to prepare themselves for a long fight. It took eight years for Graham Stafford's solicitors to obtain a redacted copy of the police evidence against him, and upon inspection, The main points of evidence of the review did not pass muster. I have commented before and I will say again, the parallels between the Holland police investigation and the Singh murder investigation are extraordinary. In both cases, police focused on the suspect the first day, within hours, to the exclusion of all other suspects. No direct or little direct evidence to link either suspect to the case. No DNA or little DNA to connect either person to the crime. No witnesses. No confession, apart from the confession to Andrea B, of course. A long list of sketchy points of circumstantial evidence that in both instances was not investigated or not thoroughly investigated until after the conviction and and appeal. Police misconduct. Fabrication of evidence. Perjury of witnesses. In the Holland case, a convicted criminal, likely involved in the murder, actively involved with the police. In the Seeker case, a convicted criminal, possibly involved in the murder, desperately trying to insert himself in the middle of the Seeker prosecution. One can ask if this is the norm for the QPS. Is this how they conduct their investigations? In June 2022, after I broadcast episode 20, I commented that was the end of the podcast unless something new came out, and now we are at episode 31. I can say at this time, this will be the last episode of Loose Ends for the moment. I have now been researching, scripting and broadcasting this podcast for two years, as at January 2023, a podcast I expected would take six months. I believe I have attempted to cover the case in an accurate and impartial manner. Jeff Johnson and I have been discussing further episodes around loose ends and at some time we may broadcast more. If and when there is movement on the petition, naturally I will broadcast that as well. Thank you for joining me on this journey and what a journey it has been. Who could have predicted when I started we would be here? I recall thanking various people at the end of episode 20. My sincere thanks to Jeff Johnson for his assistance throughout this podcast, and congratulations to Jeff Johnson for the outstanding legal work he has conducted over five years, all pro bono, in the pursuit of justice. I have said it before, if I was in a legal crisis, I would want Jeff Johnson in my corner. If we were supported by a media organization, I suggest this podcast and Jeff Johnson's work would be on the front pages for weeks or longer. There would be pressure on the government for an inquiry. God forbid a police review of their own investigation. We know how they end. Thanks for listening and supporting me. Thanks for the coffee donations. Much appreciated. Thanks for your feedback, positive and negative. I have my opinion on this case, as you know. I do not believe justice has been served here. And I believe in both the Seeker case and the Holland case, the guilty were never charged. If you haven't already, please join me on my next podcast, Bring Home Sandrine. This podcast was made possible with the awesome assistance of the ACAST Creator Network. Music Before I Go by RKVC. You'll find all my contact details in the show notes at the end of each episode. Thanks for listening.